sermon outline says the treasure of the kingdom. And as Jeff prayed through this text, we're going to read it again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. We're partway through the Sermon on the Mount as we go through the book of Matthew. And here Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he says to them, please listen carefully as this is God's word. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand what you're telling us about our own hearts. Help us to see that we value the wrong things. We do things that bring us harm. We serve idols without even thinking about it. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus and apply this word to whatever area of our life that's seeking to escape the reigning grace of our Lord Jesus. Show us our hearts. And if necessary, draw us to Christ for the first time. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. When I first started working on the sermon and I wrote this down, I said, I don't know the person's name or even the team that he plays for, but I'm fairly certain that someone will achieve great notoriety this week. They will do so by making an incredible shot at the buzzer to win the game for their team will be the kind of finish that makes the highlight reels for the rest of the tournament, possibly even for years to come. Well, now we know. If you follow the NCAA uh, basketball tournament, known commonly as March Madness, we know the first contestant in the game-winning shot contest is Vander Blue. That's a great name. I love that name. Of number three seeded Marquette, who hit the game-winning shot Thursday night to beat number 14 seed Davidson with one second left. Wrecked a lot of your brackets this week. Mine is destroyed. But Vanderblue driving the lane with the clock running out. A finger roll layup averts the upset and allows the favored Marquette to escape with the win. Just a classic finish. I love watching March Madness, especially the close games that are sometimes decided by this last-second winning shot. But I think that the lore of the winning shot, 
creates uh, one of the challenges that every one of us has to face in this life. The winning shot gives the appearance that the entire game is decided in that one moment. And it downplays the many good or bad performances in the previous 39 uh, minutes and 59 seconds of the game. What about the guy who made that great defensive play? Or the kid who came off the bench in the middle of the second half and gave the team a much-needed spark? The focus on the winning shot certainly doesn't give credit to the many boring hours of practice or all the conditioning work before the season even began. And yet, without all these other factors, the hero would never have had a chance to make the winning shot. And I thought, how many of us live our lives hoping for the winning shot? Now, I can't speak for the women, but most of the guys I know have those dreams. You know, you're the one that hits the shot at the buzzer or scores the touchdown or has the walk-off home run in your dreams. We live our lives thinking there's going to come that one life-changing moment when I'll get to be the hero. I'll get to do something really great. And I thought, where does that come from? Pride? Ego? Because I don't think it's coming from the Scriptures. In fact, I think one of the main things that Jesus is trying to teach us here in today's passage is life is made up of lots of moments. Many, many, small, little, seemingly insignificant moments. Not the big moment when everybody's watching, but all the little moments when nobody's watching. It's not the decision to drive the lane with 5.5 seconds left. It's the decision to shovel the street in front of your house at 10 Manitoba Ave, Oakland, New Jersey, 07436, so you can practice layups in January when you're in the eighth grade. Life in general, and the Christian life in particular, <coughs> is made up of dozens, if not hundreds, of decisions to do the right thing to be disciplined, to be obedient, to be faithful. And it's those decisions that reveal your level of spiritual maturity. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this text. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 and see what Jesus has to tell us about true spiritual maturity. In fact, from verses 1 all the way down through verse 18... We've seen the Lord address some practical issues. <coughs> He's talked about giving and praying and fasting. And it's interesting, in contrast to the Pharisees, well, Jesus hasn't said. He has not said. Well, just to make sure that you don't fall into the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, I'm going to make praying and giving and fasting optional. You don't really have to do it anymore. He didn't say that. Sorry. 
He said, I expect you to pray. I expect you to fast. I expect you to give. But when you do that, I don't want you to do it for the praise of men. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in the first part of Matthew 6, as we saw, Jesus has said in everything that we do, part of our Christian lives, we're not to do it for the praise of men or to enhance our own reputations. We're to do it for our Heavenly Father who loves us and for His pleasure and for His glory and for our good, but not for the praise of men. Now Jesus is shifting his attention here as we get to verse 19. He's been dealing with outward things. Praying, giving, fasting. But now he zeroes in on the heart. He has dealt with matters of the heart before because even in those things, praying, giving, and fasting, he put the emphasis on our intentions, on our motivations, and told us the state of our hearts matters with regard to those practices. But now he deals directly with the heart itself. In fact, he's going to turn our attention to the state of our own heart, having just warned us against seeking the praise of men. He's now warning us against coveting the world. Coveting the world. Now, affluence is something with which we struggle, particularly in our culture, particularly here in the United States and in the D.C. metro area, and even and especially in Loudoun County, Virginia. We've been blessed, and there is no trial like affluence. Many believers stand firm in times of testing, but fall in times of affluence. So here the Lord Jesus speaks of something that's very relevant to our own day and age. He's calling his disciples to be different than the popular culture. He wants them to avoid the hypocrisy of the religious people of their day, the Pharisees. But he also wants them to avoid the worldliness and the materialism of the Gentiles. And so we hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, beginning in verse 19, where Jesus tells us that treasure reveals your heart. Treasure reveals your heart your heart. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you want, really? What is your great desire? By what measure have you evaluated the things that you desire most in this life? Who do you serve? Who do you love? The Lord Jesus gets at all of these questions. Because they're close to the root of what life is all about. In this passage, he sets forth two options three times. Two options three times. He sets forth two treasures. And he says you can either love this treasure... Or that treasure, but not both at the same time. He sets forth two spiritual conditions. And he says you can either be in this spiritual condition or that spiritual condition, but you can't be in both at the same time. And then he sets forth two masters. And he says you can either serve one or you can serve the other. See, the Lord Jesus is forcing us to take a stand, to 
make a choice. He's forcing us to evaluate the state of our own heart. So I invite you to look with me today, see the truth of what Jesus says. Specifically, ask the Lord to help you search out your own heart because Jesus means for us to engage in some pretty serious self-evaluation. Now there's lots and lots of things we can learn from this passage, far too many to cover in the time that we have this morning. But I'd like to point your attention to a few things that we can learn from the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. First, we see in verse 19, Jesus sets forth the first of two treasures. He says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's setting forth the principle that Christians must guard against setting their hearts on temporary blessings. Temporary being the key word. It's the first thing Jesus teaches us in this passage. Every man has a treasure. Every woman has a desire. Everybody has some ultimate priority in this life. Everybody has something in which we delight more than anything else. And the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about that delight. For each one of us, perhaps it's slightly different. It comes in different forms and can be attained in differing degrees of success. But Christ is saying here to be careful What you set your ultimate delight on, your ultimate desire. Be careful about that which you choose to be your ultimate treasure. By the way, Christ is not saying that we're to have no treasure. Nor is he saying we can only have heavenly treasure, but that we can value nothing in this life. Not at all. He's directing us to make a very wise choice about that which we treasure the most. And he's saying to us, be careful of temporary things. Don't let these temporary things replace the eternal things which are supposed to be first in our lives. Christ is issuing a warning against making the things that are seen, the tangible blessings of this life, to become the things that are first, the things that matter to us the most, the things that we seek after the most, the things that we desire the most. And there's a number of different ways this can happen uh, in our life. We can make temporary things our first desire by considering them to be the very best things that we have. We can assume that some of these blessings the Lord has given us are the best things to be had in this life. We can be uh, absorbed with an obsession to increase the amount and the abundance of things that we have. We may want to accumulate more of the blessings that God's already given us to the point that we neglect things that are the most important in life as if more could satisfy us or bring us some sort of ultimate contentment. We may be finding our security for the future in these earthly things, in these temporal or temporary things. It may even be people. We may find our security in the relationships that we have. We may find our security for the future in the relationship uh, that we have with someone and we think uh, that person's going to provide for us. We may find our security for the future in physical wealth or in possessions. Whatever the case is, when we begin to find our security in those things, our priorities have gone astray. 
we may be finding our contentment in earthly things and not in eternal things. And in any of these ways, we fall in prey to making the things of this world first things. And Christ, in his kindness, not only tells us not to do that, but he gives us reasons. He gives us arguments as to why we shouldn't do that. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He speaks of the eternal decaying of material possessions, and he speaks of the possibility of someone coming in and taking them from us. And of course, those things apply specifically to wealth and possessions, but I think they apply much more broadly than that. Because here Jesus is teaching us two laws. In the first, we have the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns. It's not just the things we have won't ultimately satisfy us. I mean, we all have a certain amount of things, and we take satisfaction in them for a while. But then we get bored with that, and we want more. It's the law of diminishing returns. You have to get more in order to continue that satisfaction. That can happen in relationships. That can happen in success. That can happen in popularity. That can happen in honor or influence. It can happen in many categories of earthly blessings. We find our contentment, our satisfaction in one of these earthly blessings, and yet we find after some period of time, they're not giving us the satisfaction that we once got from them. And so we have to move on to something else or something more. On the other hand, there's the law of impermanence. Impermanence. I'll let you figure out the spelling. Sometimes we lose the blessings we have. We may have gotten some sort of blessings from God. God may bless us uh, for a time with great material prosperity and security. And then he may choose to withhold those blessings from us. And if your trust has been in those blessings, if your contentment has been in those blessings, and suddenly you're without them, then we find ourselves without satisfaction, without peace, without joy, without hope. And Jesus is reminding us that the things in this life, relationships, people, possessions, wealth, honor, promotion, all temporary. All those things are temporary. They cannot be counted on. They cannot be our ultimate treasure. Again, I want to note here, Christ is not saying that possessions are bad. He's not saying that possessions, things, wealth are in and of themselves bad. He's not saying that wealthy people are bad, although some are. He's not saying that Christians should not have possessions. What he is saying is that excessive desire for possessions, excessive desire for wealth is destructive. And he's warning Christians against it. Now, also, Jesus is not saying, Christians, make sure that you don't save, make sure that you don't invest, and don't buy insurance. He's not waging the wholesale assault on insurance salesmen and financial planners. He's not saying, don't worry about being a good steward of the resources the Lord's given you. He is saying, don't put your trust in those things. Let me go off on a sidetrack here just for a moment. 
because this is going to be a little odd for some of you. Those of you who are the best stewards of your money, those of you who most carefully and prayerfully attempt to invest and save and plan for the future with the resources that God has given you, you are most susceptible because of your good planning to trust in your planning. Those of you who are the best stewards must be careful that your trust is not in those things. Doesn't mean stop planning. Doesn't mean stop being a good steward. But it means that you carefully and prayerfully make sure that your heart finds its trust not in the fact that there's a wonderful nest egg stored up or that you have enough to educate the kids or that you can already retire. Your trust is not to be there. It is to be on the Lord himself. And you recognize those temporary things are just instruments. They're just tools. Not the ultimate satisfying things in this life. Finally, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't enjoy wealth or possessions. He's not saying don't enjoy temporary things. Not at all. In fact, temporary blessings uh, come from the hand of the Lord. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation teaches us where to accept those gifts from the Lord with thanks. But we're not to worship them. We're not to find our contentment with them. We're not to find our satisfaction in them. But you know, we have to admit that possessions and wealth present a particular challenge to us. And the more we have, the easier it is to be fooled that they, those, that wealth, those riches, those things can give us satisfaction and peace and meaning in this life. The more we have, the more likely it is that we're going to be fooled into trusting something which will one day pass away. Now let me reverse the table. Just because you may not have a lot of money doesn't mean you're not susceptible into falling into the trap of being preoccupied with wealth. We don't tend to think of ourselves as wealthy people. You ask someone, are they wealthy? They almost always say no, even if they are. And wealth can vary widely, but we can all get trapped by affluence and the desire for more. Remember, a famous lawyer asked John D. Rockefeller, who created the great Rockefeller fortune, he asked him, how much is enough? Rockefeller looked up and said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. In the December 10th issue of Newsweek, one of their last issues, um, there was this short article called Covet This Closet. And the article is about a website called thecovetour.com. A website offers a glimpse into trendsetters' homes so you can covet their possessions. It gives you a tour of their home. and shows you all the great stuff they have that you don't have but you really would like. And you should covet what they have. And it's complete with links to fancy retail sites so you can buy the overpriced stuff that they have. 
You can't make this stuff up. It's true. It's right here. It's Newsweek. Huh? I mean, who can live without this $70 designer candle? In this text, Jesus is asking us to take stock of what we value. Do we have our treasure in the wrong place? Have we fallen into the trap of coveting more? The Puritan, William Guthrie, he once said, If you find yourself loving any pleasure better than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, or any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, take alarm. So are the alarm bells going off? Are they ringing in your heart? Have you found your heart drifting away from your first love and from first things? We have to be aware of coveting the things of the world because we all do it. We don't all admit it, but we all do it. And we have to be prepared to cultivate the ability to examine the things that we think of the most and to evaluate those in light of eternity. Jesus is teaching us our desires show us who our God is. Our desires reveal our hearts. They're the evidence of what we value. Look at what you desire and you'll see what you value. Look at where your heart is and you'll see what your treasure is. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's saying that the things we long after are really the things that we think are important. And we can say, as many of us have done, Jesus is my Lord. But the things that we desire, the things we long after can contradict that claim. And Jesus is reminding us that our hearts follow what we treasure. And so he says, let me ask you this, where's your heart? Find your heart and I'll show you your treasure. Jesus is teaching us that treasure is a test. Temporary blessings from God is a test. It's a test to see whether or not we love him more than those things. And Christ says our desires show us what we really value. He goes on to say, verses 22 and 23, there are some people who think about life in just this wrong way. He wants us to know that light reveals your health. Light reveals your health. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's using a metaphor. It's almost a parable. He begins with a general statement that explains both pictures. The eye is the lamp of the body. In this case, the eye takes the place of the heart from the previous verses. So he's not really changing subjects. He's looking at the same idea from a different angle. What is the focus of our values and treasures? The eye is the heart. Sinclair Ferguson writes, fixing your eye on something and fixing your heart on something amount to the same thing. Focusing our attention and concentrating all our energies on that one thing. It's the point of our understanding. The eye is the lamp of the body, so it's the gateway that affects how we view life, eternity, God, and ourselves. And he talks about the eye like it's a key.
keyhole on a door that lets the light from the outside world into our soul. He's speaking of the eye as that thing which focuses our energies and our attentions on certain things in this life. But the eye can be either clear, healthy, or bad, or cloudy. He says if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The word healthy can be translated as clear, clean, pure, single-minded, even generous as opposed to stingy. And it seems that the meaning in this case is the single-mindedness that affects purity and generosity in the whole of our lives. And such single-mindedness means a devotion to Christ. I don't mean having a devotional time uh, with Christ, but focused love for Jesus. Your love and loyalty is not set upon the world, but it's set upon Christ. And he's saying if your eye is spiritually blind doesn't matter how bright the world is out there. You can't see, and you won't choose the right treasure. He's talking about two spiritual conditions. One is spiritual blindness, and one is spiritual sight. And he's saying if you're blind, you're going to choose temporary things as your ultimate blessing. And you will confuse the gift with the giver. You will confuse the gift with the giver. Another Puritan, big week for Puritans, Joseph Elaine once said these sobering words, there is no sure evidence of an unconverted state than to have the things of the world uppermost in our aim and our love and our estimation. They're pretty frightening words. Especially as all of us, each and every one of us, comparatively close at times to having temporary things first in our minds. And what's going on inside of us, what we treasure, what we're able uh, to uh, see and understand will eventually be revealed by what and who we choose to serve. Because service reveals your God. Service reveals your God. Verse 24. Jesus sets before us two masters here. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Choose who you will serve. You cannot serve both. Notice that Jesus teaches here not that we shouldn't serve both God and money, not that we must not serve both God and things, but that we cannot serve God and things. He says it's impossible to serve both God and mammon. You have to choose whom you will serve. I think it's important to see uh, the distinction Jesus gives here. He goes back to the arena of treasure. It says money. Most translations use money. But you should have a footnote at the bottom that says the actual word is mammon. What is mammon? Is it wealth? Sure. It's wealth, it's possessions, it's money, it's treasure. But it is so much more than that. Mammon is an Aramaic term that personified material things as objects of worship. There's probably no greater distraction in knowing Christ is Lord than this matter of loving things and using Christ to further your own agenda. So instead of our possessions being instruments for service, We find ourselves cherishing them as the love of our lives. 
And mammon can be your stomach, your ease, your sleep, your sports, your hobbies, your interests, your pastimes, and it can be riches. It can be honor, status, influence. It could be receiving the praise of men. It could be pleasure. It could be children. It could be relationships. It could be the pursuit of physical health. It could be the desire for the perfect marriage. It could be anything we excessively obsess about and find our security and trust and contentment and satisfaction in other than God. Anything can become that kind of idol. Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. And he's right. Anything can become mammon. And Jesus says you can't love God and that thing, whatever that thing is for you. You cannot serve them both. You cannot love them both. So we're forced to ask the question, three questions in fact. Where is our treasure? How's our spiritual vision? And finally, who is our master? Where is our treasure? How is our spiritual vision? And who is our master? And who do you love? Who do you serve? Don't settle for the good and lose the best. The English writer Malcolm Muggeridge, another great name, he once said, the only ultimate disaster that can befall us is to feel at home on this earth. Find our trust, our rest, our peace, our reward here, and you are in great danger. Jesus doesn't give us room for dabbling in Christianity. And my observation is many of us are satisfied to dabble in Christianity. We want Christianity when it's convenient, and we want it on our own terms. But Christ is the master, and we're the slaves. John Freeman, a theology professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, said the first thing, and in one sense the only thing, we need to know about God is that He is Lord. And that's precisely why you cannot serve God and money. When the focus of your heart is on possessions or positions in this life, then our love and loyalty is really towards ourselves and not on the Lord as the king over all. And in using these metaphors and figures of speech about serving a master, it's not hyperbole, it's not exaggerated. Being a kingdom citizen means you gladly submit to the king, to Christ's mastery over your life. And it's a dangerous business. Because calling Jesus king or lord or master is the demand of this text. It's easy to do, but it's hard to keep. It's precisely the irony of Palm Sunday. In churches all over the world today, children wave palm branches. Commemoration of that first jubilant Palm Sunday. Who's got a palm branch this morning? Hold that up. Whoever got, we got more than five. Hold them up. Because I know we bought a whole b bunch of them. Palm branches, that's a symbol of triumph for all of you. It was waved in ancient times to welcome royalty, extol the victorious. And then they would take the palm branches and they Put them down on the paths of the worthy, those to uh, be honored and have special distinction. 
can put them down. All four of the gospel writers report to us that Jesus was given that kind of tribute. He came into Jerusalem riding on a colt and was greeted as king. The crowds laid the branches and garments on the street in front of him. An audience of applauders led him into the city and followed after him with chants of, of blessing and of shouts of kingship. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, Hosanna in the highest. And the triumph of Palm Sunday is not lost on the young. Long before I could see its strange place in the passion narrative, I loved celebrating this story as a kid. It was a day in church set apart from all others. In that place where we were commonly asked to sit still and be quiet, we suddenly had permission to cheer and march and wave those long palm branches and generally draw attention to ourselves. I like that. But like so many stories in childhood, they grow complicated as the chapters continue. Palm Sunday is far more than a triumphant recollection of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And the convicting irony is that, you know, having these holiday Christians uh, celebrating each cheer of victory and reenacting a scene of victory here and knowing, as John alluded to at the beginning of our service, it's all going to change in a matter of days. In less time than it takes to plan a king's coronation, cheers of Hosanna become shouts of crucify him. And the honor that's extended with palms and praises is going to be taken back shortly after it's placed in front of him. And the troubling reality to the triumph of Palm Sunday is that we now know the defeat of the cross is yet to come. But it's even more than that. With Palm Sunday comes the arrival of Holy Week in all of its darkness and blinding mystery and wild speculation. Would I have been with the marching crowd that cheered him as king only to cheer him again as he was marched to the cross? What could be called a fickle crowd or an illustration of the power of mob think, in truth only reminds me of my own wavering faith in the Son of God. How easy it is to make the declarations that he's first, he's most important, he's my treasure. He's the light that I see. He's the only one that I'll serve. And in a few short days, they become denials of his lordship with a change in mood or a turn in fortune. And how readily hands-waving... Palms in praise become fists of pain. And like a palm laid down and taken back up, honor bestowed on Sunday can be abandoned by Wednesday. And such are the thoughts that my adult mind carries through this story that I once took such delight in. And with palms in our hands, we carry the same burden of knowing, same burden that Jesus himself carried, through that first crowd. Riding through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus knew then what he knows now. The honor will be abandoned. These praises will cease and these palm branches will be trampled to dust. The cross will still come. 
This week, the church invites the world to remember the one who comes into the midst of that fickle humanity, surrounded by duplicity, defeat, violence, injustice, pain, and sin. And he comes near to both our good and bad intentions. He comes near the ashes of what was meant to honor. And he comes near the ruins of our feeble attempts to secure our own salvation. And despite our wavering faith, despite sin that we cannot leave, despite the treasure we love more than him, despite the darkness that fills our heads, and despite the service we give elsewhere, he invites us into a different story of defeat. The son has made his triumphal entry, and he comes to bring us the cross to the one sacrifice that takes away our pain, that pays for our sins, and fills our souls with hope. In the winner-go-home world of March Madness, in the winner-go-home world of Hosanna's becoming crucified, in the winner-go-home world of palm branches becoming nails in a cross, in this win-or-go-home world, Jesus does both. And he invites you to join him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. In this passage, we see your son as Lord and Savior. And we know that we choose the wrong treasure. We know we fill our lives with darkness. We know we serve the mammon of our own lives. Help us to see this sin and run to Christ. We want to treasure him first. We want to be in the light so that we can see him. We want to serve him with our whole heart. We want to win, and we want to go home. And we know only the king can make that happen. So, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, but trusting in stuff, in other people, in events, we ask that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that they might embrace your beloved Son. And help us to know and believe that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord from the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne.